This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. What do museums have to do with climate change, environmental crisis, and communication? Well, this week on Communication Mixdown, we'll find out. Hello, I'm John Langer. And our guests this week know quite a lot about museums and how they can communicate about climate change and environmental crisis. They're both from the United States, where they work heading up some very unique and innovative museum communication initiatives. And they're both here to give keynote talks at the Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. This is a festival of ideas, exhibitions, and events being held around Melbourne and in regional Victoria all this month. And the focus is on the links between art and activism, community engagement, transition, and accelerated action on climate change. And these are precisely the concerns of our first guest, on Communication Mixdown. She's Miranda Massey, and she's the founder and director of the Climate Museum in New York City, the first museum in the United States dedicated to confronting and generating dialogue about the global climate emergency. I spoke to her last week about the museum and how some of its aims and projects are connected with issues to do with communication. Now, a museum devoted to climate change, this to me was a rather novel idea. I wanted to ask, how did that come about in the early days? And I understand Hurricane Sandy had a little bit of a part to play in that. That's right. Uh, The idea came to me several weeks after Hurricane Sandy caused a kind of tectonic plate shift in me. I'd been thinking a lot about climate change and, in a sense, pushing the idea away, as we often will, because it's such a huge topic and can feel very unapproachable and overwhelming. And I was happily ensconced in an incredibly dynamic and rewarding um, job. And uh, Hurricane Sandy shifted something in me and and made me realize that it was going to have to be my my next major point of focus in life. Um, And when the idea for a museum proper came to me, because I was working as a civil rights and environmental advocate and litigator, uh, and and so it's one thing to jump to climate, but the museum part of it seemed so perfectly formed and like such an obvious thing that we need to have when it came into my mind that I assumed that I had read about a climate museum somewhere and was inadvertently lifting the idea. And that was that was a few years ago, and and uh, you've come a long way since then. As I understand it, there you this year you've had some public programming with two art exhibitions. Uh, can you tell tell us about these, and uh, what would people be seeing and hearing 
uh, if they went to see these exhibitions? Well, yeah, this was our first our first year of public facing programming was 2018, um, and we did two big shows and a third smaller show. The first of the big shows was in partnership with the Parsons School of Design, which is a a major art school in the in the U.S. and they loaned us an absolutely spectacular gallery space where we explored the question of human scale of of time, geologic scale of time, and melting polar ice. Um, so it was it was it was dedicated to exploring humanity's ability to engage with the melting of the polar ice caps in different ways through through the work of these two extraordinary and very, very distinct artists, one of whom does awe-inspiringly large, hand-drawn, soft charcoal renditions of polar landscapes that are almost clinical in their level of expository detail, but at the same time maintain to the end the the marks of her hands. She uses her hands to make the drawings. And so there's a this beautiful contradiction between the warmth and care of her human touch and the almost photorealistic level of detail in these very, very large large format images. Um, and then the second artist is uh, uh, works in a, a number of media, including video, and uh, is based in Los Angeles. And she made an extraordinary film, four and a half hours long, that takes you down through 110,000 years of history, geologic history, through the ice cores that scientists removed from uh, the Greenland ice sheet. And the ice is spectacularly beautiful, and it's variegated, and it's striations and coloring. Essentially, the markings on the ice are roughly analogous to tree rings, and they, you can count years by counting summer snow rings in the ice as you go down mm. into time. Um, and the ice gets denser and more compressed and dirtier as you get deeper and deeper into the ice sheet. Um, and mm. it's uh, a hauntingly beautiful, mesmerizing film can I so can I just come in there and uh, ask you something else? Because the the what I read was that you were a few years ago you were looking for a building. You you actually have a building now? Is is with these exhibitions? No, we don't. We, so this this show we we are looking to scale out to year round space. This year we'll have five months for a show, which I'll which I'll tell you about if we um, have the chance in a moment. But um, this show that I just described was at the Parsons School of Design in mm. in Manhattan. Um, we were loaned space over about a two-month period to run the show that was called Inhuman Time, again, about uh, ice, melting ice and humanity and time um, through the work of the two artists. Zaria Foreman was the large-scale pastel artist, and Peggy Weil was the video artist. So that was our first show. It is very, very um, aesthetically intense and, I would say, somewhat rarefied given its location it's one of the best art schools we were conscious of the fact that we were reaching an important constituency but not the broader public yes. with that show and so for our second major exhibition we 
pulled very much in the opposite direction in terms of location and access and did a show across the city of New York, 10, um, ten sites in all five boroughs of New York City, very um, great demographic and social diversity in the neighborhoods where we were located, um, all of which, all of these, these were all outdoor art installations, which I'll describe in a moment. The idea was to put them in some of the neighborhoods that are most vulnerable to climate change in New York City and to put them in some um, art-rich and well-served neighborhoods and communities and also in some marginalized and underserved communities that don't see enough public art mm. um, and to make the piece in part about the need for us all to come together to fight this massive existential crisis um, that, that we all confront with the climate emergency and the need to recognize uh, inequalities and um, rectify those even even as we insist on on the need for for collective action at the at the highest level what the art consisted of was uh, it's a brilliant insight by the artist Justin Bryce Gorilla that traf- of using traffic signs to flash climate messaging because normally you're driving down the highway and you see a traffic sign and your limbic system pulses a little differently because you know there's something coming up that's changing it's a dynamic situation. It's uncertain, and it relates to your safety. And you have a deep automatic response to that if you've grown up in any culture that uses traffic signs to flash warnings about about safety and uh, hazardous mm-hmm. conditions on the road ahead. And so he did a series of um, of sayings that were designed to be um, provoke provoke a response and provoke conversation uh, among the public. And in keeping with the impulse of the show to reach as broad an audience as possible and to draw as many people as possible into the climate conversation, the messages were translated into the languages of the neighborhoods where they were located. Mm -hmm. So we had Spanish and French and then also uh, Chinese and Russian. Nobody had ever programmed these signs in Chinese or mm-hmm. Russian before, mm-hmm. non-Roman alphabet languages before, so that took an extra couple of weeks for us to get up. But it, it, there was one day when in one of the special programs we did for that show, which was up for several months around the city of New York, was um, an Ask a Scientist Day where scientists, climatologists from NASA and, and other institutions fanned out across the city with community organizers and representatives and had tables and chairs set up and activities and were there to answer mm-hmm. the public's questions. Mm-hmm. And I was at a site in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where both where Spanish is, and is spoken widely throughout New York. So all the signs had Spanish um, mm-hmm. and, uh, rotated in because it's just such a bilingual city. But, but in Sunset Park, Cantonese and Mandarin are both spoke at, spoken at very high levels um, among the local population as well. And I was is surrounded by these intergenerational conversations in mm. Cantonese, Mandarin, Spanish, and English about climate change and what yes. people could do, because it turned out that was their question. They didn't yes, come yes. And that's actually... and to ask questions about science. They just wanted to know, what can we do? There's hunger for spaces to talk about and think about and feel about climate change. Um, and so a museum is um, an institution that provides precisely that kind of space for contemplation and group connection. Often, when you're talking about climate change, you tend to have a pretty gloomy sort of scenario, but you want visitors 
to the, your exhibitions to have an opportunity to take positive action. What sorts of things were you suggesting? Our next show will address that in a way that's much more satisfying, at least to me. Um, and one of the things we realized, we're certainly going to do art shows again. I, I think art is an extraordinary provides an extraordinary set of pathways for people to get involved in the climate conversation because it's physical and visceral and emotional and communal, and those are all things that we need to respond to this crisis. And that's really where we live in terms of communications, um, much more than in the realm of the purely intellectual. Mm. Um, For our next show, though, what we're doing, we're doing a departure from from the work we've done the collaborations that we've done with artists working on climate um, to very directly and very much in the first person and the simple first person talk about the availability of climate solutions, the impediments to their accelerated and intensive implementation, which is to say the extent to which we exist in an economy and a political culture dominated by fossil fuels and by silence about climate change, and then um, the opportunity to take in multi-scalar communities action that addresses precisely those barriers. So it's a a real departure for us and something Mm. we are very excited about. Um, It's inspired by the youth climate movement, which I think calls on all of us to Mm. address this in a fresh way, and no, no matter what what our current level of commitment and action is to go deeper and to look hard at what we're taking for granted about what can change and what can't change. What should a stance of a museum be? Um, How far can a museum move toward activism Mm. um, and a call to action and still be Mm. a museum? What should the role of a dedicated climate museum Mm. be in this age of the crisis? So I think the, uh, the, call of young people for intergenerational justice in a livable world really is a demand um, we should all take very seriously. That was a pre-recorded interview with Miranda Massey. She's the director of the Climate Museum in New York City, and she was here in Melbourne as a keynote speaker at the Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. This week on Communication Mixdown, we're exploring the ways that museums can use different forms of communication to investigate and inform the public about the twin existential crises of 
climate change and global environmental degradation. Becca Economopoulos has been an environmental activist for nearly 20 years, and she's the co-founder and executive director of the Natural History Museum based in the United States. She was also here in Melbourne as a keynote speaker at the Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. I spoke with her last week about the museum and some of its unique communicational strategies. Well, the Natural History Museum has been described as a pop-up museum and as a form of political organizing and consciousness raising for social change. These, to me, are very unconventional ways of describing a museum. Now, as you know, we're a program about communication. So why don't we start by you telling us about the Natural History Museum, how it works in these unconventional ways, especially as these issues would relate to communication. Sure. Well, I'm with a collective that works at the intersection of art, activism, critical theory, called Not an Alternative, and it's artists, activists, scholars that have been working together since 2003. And a few years ago, we launched the Natural History Museum, which is a mobile and pop-up museum registered with the American Alliance of Museums. And, And we started it as a sort of Trojan horse strategy to get inside the museum sector to transform it from within. And we see museums as very influential spaces for communicating science to the public, for mediating our understandings of nature and culture. And in a time of profound environmental and social change, our question is, can they become a part of social movement infrastructure? Maybe one of the ways to explain and understand the approach that the Natural History Museum takes is to use an actual example. Tell me about the totem pole journeys and their connection to the fossil fuel industry. Sure. Um, So we joined up with Lummi Nation, which is a native nation on the west coast of the United States, And they're kind of at ground zero for fossil fuel expansion projects, extraction from Canada and the tar sands and uh, the northern U.S. needs to get out the West Coast to be sold to Asia. And so there's an onslaught of projects that have been proposed to go through Lummi Nation's waters and ancestral territories. And Lummi has been very powerful about um, raising awareness, generating media attention, through traditional forms of art, culture, and storytelling. So, for example, for many years, they've been carving an annual series of totem poles that they then take on journeys to different communities facing similar threats from fossil fuels as a means of building alliances. And we reached out to Lummi Nation when we had an opportunity to produce an exhibition inside one of the largest natural history museums in our country, and um, saw it as an opportunity to bring the museum on board as an ally on the journey as well. Interestingly, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History is based in the middle of coal and fracking country outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the museum director there said, you know, a lot of my board got wealthy off of fossil fuels. I can't really talk directly about fossil fuels, Mm. but I can host a totem pole that's a monument to resistance to fossil fuels. So that's something we've been thinking about is communication strategies that can be win-win-win for different stakeholders and speak to different audiences, yet still enable the museum sector 
to engage with pressing contemporary topics. Just in terms of uh, us being in Australia and Melbourne, uh, the totem pole that you're talking about, just can you describe it? Give us a visual picture of it. It's, is, is it enormous? Is it, what, what, what's the size and how, how would it stand and so on? It is a 3,000-pound, 16-foot painted and carved red cedar totem pole. Um, and it is transported on these journeys on a flatbed truck and ceremony and public events are held where people are invited and encouraged to touch the totem pole. And so Lummi Nation describes it as a sort of battery that charges from place to place as people lay hands on it. They give it energy and it gives them energy in turn. So our thinking in bringing it to the museum was not to sort of capture it as this object to um, uh, admire, um, but really as as something to charge the rest of the objects in the museum with contemporary uh, socio-political context. And when you take the totem pole to a particular place, do you also have um, discussions? Do you have particular events around the pole at, over a period of days or weeks? I'm just trying to unpack how this how the Natural History Museum works. So on the totem pole journeys, each place where it stops on the journey, there's usually a a one-day event with talks and performances and ceremony, uh, screenings perhaps. But in the case of the exhibitions, we've been building exhibitions around the totem pole that connect to local issues where in the host community where the museum is um, and connect them to global concerns like climate change and Mm. environmental justice. So these exhibitions are up for four, five, six months at a time. They're multimedia. Um, There's on-ramps for people to take action. Um, And these are things that we would hope more museums would do um, as we're facing biodiversity and climate crises, and in particular, uplifting the communities who are both on the front lines of climate change, but also leading movements internationally to protect our collective future. And how? Where is the totem pole gone? Is has it gone to many places? Uh, it sounds like it's been a, quite an extensive journey. Yeah. Well, there there is a new totem pole each year over the last six years that oh. Lummi Nation has carved. So, okay. um, many ongoing journeys. Um, the exhibitions we've developed are traveling. The most recent one is currently at the Florida Museum of Natural History, and that pole is in the shape of a killer whale or orca. Um, which is a sacred species to the Lummi, and the Salish Sea, where they're located, they're critically endangered and under threat from these mega ships and oil vessels um, that are proposed for their waters. And um, so that exhibition tells the story about the Lummi's relationship to Quilchomishtan, the people who live under the sea. Mm. Extremely interesting, actually fascinating the way you're describing all of this and uh, very interesting in relation to uh, possible things that could potentially happen in Australia as well. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of the issues we're raising with our museum and museum transformation project are very relevant to Australia. For example, one of the things we've been calling on museums to do in collaboration with scientists around the world is to cut ties to fossil fuel sponsors um, so in the last few years, we've gotten nine museums to either divest from fossil fuels or drop a fossil fuel sponsor or board member. 
Um, and I know in Australia, several mm. museums and art galleries and cultural institutions are likewise sponsored by oil or mining companies. Mm. And talking about communications, I mean, that's been a very deliberate strategy on the part of industry over the course of several decades to embed into these spaces that communicate science to the public as a means of bolstering their own scientific legitimacy at the same time that they're funding climate denial or politicians that block action on climate change, for example, um, and also as a means of buying what they call um, their social license to operate. So the sort of goodwill and positive PR that's to be gained from um, the corporate name on the gallery wall. Mm, absolutely. And you've hit the nail on the head, as they say, about Australia and the, and the fossil fuel industry and, and the, the arts culture sphere as well. Now, you've written something that was very interesting. You said that in the post, what you call the post-Standing Rock era, artifacts housed in museums that come from indigenous cultures in North America are charged with new meaning and significance. Now, when I read this, it struck me as very much connected to these artifacts and how they communicate. Can you explain what you were getting at and you maybe use a particular example? Sure. Well, part of it is, you know, there's a way of presenting objects in museums that sort of um, sterilizes them. It's, um, it, it decontextualizes them. And, um, and that's not how the Native communities we're working with think about their cultural heritage, their objects. Um, and cultural patrimony. They're um, alive in their sensibility. They're, they're charged with meaning that changes over time and, um, and also communicates lessons from the people whose hands forged them. Um, and, and those lessons, the presence of those ancestors, um, is so relevant to contemporary communities and contemporary issues. And so when you take a, a purely scientific approach to exhibit labels and just describe the materials something is made from or its um, use value uh, when it was made, um, you're missing a whole, um, not just opportunity, but also a whole perspective on, mm. um, uh, on these objects and what they mean to living communities now um, and to the rest of us. Um, when indigenous communities around the world are stewarding more than 80% of the global biodiversity, their sovereignty, their pro the protection of these cultures and the support of their um, efforts are kind of mission critical for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Becca, there's so much more I'd like to ask you, but I think we're just about out of time. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on Communication Mixdown today. Well, thank you, and thanks for all your good work. That was a pre-recorded interview with Becca Economopoulos. She's an environmental activist and co-founder and executive director of the Natural History Museum based in the United States. That's all from Communication Mixdown this week. Thanks again to our guests, Miranda Massey and Becca Economopoulos, and the podcast of this show and the relevant links to all the things we were talking about will be posted on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. We'll be back again next Monday.